All right. Good evening, everybody. Good to see you all tonight. Thank you for putting up with the construction. It's a little bit of a hassle, but it's going to be nice when it's done. Tonight, can I have, have you turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Genesis, chapter 35? And tonight, let's just begin at the beginning. Verse 1. Then God said to Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there, and make an altar there to God, who appeared to you when you fled from the face of Esau, your brother. Now, it's important that we see this call of God that he gave to Jacob to return to Bethel. It's important that we see it next to the backdrop of chapter 34. I mean, this begins chapter 35, but it's important that we see it next to the backdrop of chapter 34. Chapter 34 is really the antithesis of chapter 35. In chapter 34, the name of God is not mentioned one time. In chapter 35, it's mentioned directly and indirectly 22 times. But in chapter 34, we don't hear God's name mentioned at all. In fact, this chapter, chapter 34, is full of the flesh, really full of lust, rape, deceit, revenge, murder, etc. Chapter 34 records one of the most disgusting, degenerate, overtly wicked examples of family dysfunction and depravity that we see really anywhere in the Bible. And yet chapter 35 opens up with God calling Jacob and, of course, his family back to Bethel, back to the place of fellowship and communion with him. Genesis 34 is a chapter that focuses on the flesh of man. Genesis 35 focuses on the grace of God. The grace of God that says no matter what you've done, no matter how you've lived, I want to forgive you and I want you to come and fellowship with me. The underlying theme, guys, of this chapter is it's never too late to go home. So in that regard, it applies to all of us. We've all wandered. We've all gotten away from God at times. And this chapter is a great chapter where God is beckoning us all to come. If he would beckon Jacob and this family to come back to him, <laughs> there's hope for all of us, okay? And again, the theme of this chapter is it's never too late to go home. It's never too late to get back to Bethel, back to the place where you first met God. Jesus put it this way in Revelation chapter 2. He said, you've left your first love. Remember from whence you have fallen. Turn around. Come back to me. That's always the heart of God. Remember that as Genesis 35 opens up, 30 years have now passed since Jacob first had a dream at Bethel when he was running from Esau, his brother, running to his uncle Laban's house in Mesopotamia. At that time, he covered 40 miles the first day. That's a lot of miles to cover on foot the first day, which indicates he was running. He was afraid. He was afraid Esau was going to be coming behind him at any moment to kill him. So he makes 40 miles the first day, is exhausted, he lays down, grabs a rock for a pillow, you know, and there he has a dream. God revealed himself to Jacob in that place. He saw a ladder that extended from earth to heaven and angels ascending and descending on this ladder. Of course, later on, Jesus would interpret that and tell us that in John's gospel that he is that ladder. He's the one who's bridged the gap between heaven and earth. It made it possible not just it made it possible for man to someday ascend to God uh, on a ladder that Jesus created through his own cross, of course. But uh, this revelation, uh, it, this dream caused Jacob to name the place Bethel, which means house of God. 
And it led him to make a vow to God in that place. We read about that, or we studied it in Genesis 28, starting in verse 20, where Jacob said, If God will be with me, and keep me in this way in which I am going, and give me bread to eat and clothing to put on, so that I come back to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone which I have set as a pillar shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will surely give a tenth to you. Now, this vow was followed by a 20-year sojourn in Mesopotamia as Jacob was working for his uncle Laban. At the end of that time, God reminded Jacob of his vow. And he told him it was time to return back to the land of his fathers, back to Canaan. We see that in chapter 31, verse 3. Jacob, however, as we've studied now, we studied this, Jacob, however, doesn't obey God immediately, but spends the next 8 to 10 years in Sukkoth, which is outside the promised land. And when he finally does cross over into, the, into Canaan, instead of going directly to Bethel, as God had told him so many years earlier, he settles about 20 miles away uh, on the outskirts of a very prosperous city known as Shechem. Now that becomes the backdrop or the background for chapter 34. A chapter, guys, of disasters we studied last time, all because Jacob offered God partial obedience instead of full surrender and faithfulness. Some would say, yeah, but he was close. He was close to Bethel. Doesn't that count for something? Okay. I think a lot of Christians kind of have that idea that if they offer, if they get close to full commitment, isn't God happy with that? I mean, you know, I mean, they offer God 90% commitment and obedience and feel that God should be happy with that. It's good enough, isn't it? Well, let me just ask you this. Try applying that to the commitment your spouse shows you in marriage. Honey, I'm faithful to you 90% of the time. I mean, isn't that good enough? Obviously not. And yet we come to Jesus with that same mentality. Well, Lord, I'm you know, I'm, I'm pretty committed. I mean, I'm pretty faithful. And God is saying, I want all of you. I'm jealous for you. I made a commitment to you. I'm betrothed to you. And I deserve to have all of you because I've given you all of me. I'm holding nothing back. Okay, when I entered into this commitment to you, uh, when you gave your heart to me, I gave you everything. In fact, I applied my death, my blood to your account. And I want everything from you. I don't want a half-hearted commitment. And yet through all this carnality, half-hearted service, and flat-out disobedience, God still loved Jacob and wanted him back to Bethel, back to that place where he first fell in love with the Lord. Verse 1, once again, Then God said to Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel, and dwell there, and make an altar there to God, who appeared to you when you fled from the face of Esau, your brother. And Jacob said to his household, and to all who were with him, Put away the foreign gods that are among you, purify yourselves, and change your garments. Then let us arise and go up to Bethel. And I will make an altar there to God, who answered me in the day of my distress, and has been with me in the way which I have gone. It's tragic to see how far this patriarch and his family had moved from God. Here, here we see them living in idolatry. It's amazing. Whenever we're not where God wants us to be, whenever we move out of God's perfect will for our lives, guess what? Idolatry is inevitable. Because the farther away from God you move, the more the world is going to begin to rush in to fill the void. The devil will capitalize on that, 
It starts out maybe subtly. It's not, it doesn't happen all at once most of the time. But it's a slow sliding away from God, a drifting. And the farther we drift from God, the more the old life comes back, the more the old habits, the old way of speaking, the old ideas and so on. Whenever we're not where God wants us to be, we are going to slip into some kind of idolatry. Prosperity, guys, has a way of causing us to let spiritual things decline. That's why, again, Jesus said, remember from whence you have fallen and repent. And basically, that's what God is saying to Jacob now. Notice that God didn't say, this is important. Notice that God didn't say, clean up your life, and maybe I'll let you come back to me. He just said, come back to me, period. Come back to me. It was in the light of God's grace and goodness that Jacob repented and cleaned up his life spiritually. As Paul tells us in Romans 2, verse 4, it is the goodness of God that leads us to repentance. Now, here's the thing. It can be used in reverse. Sometimes people can abuse the grace of God. And here's the mentality. Well, I know I'm not really walking with God, but apparently he doesn't mind that I'm involved in this or that. You know, usually some kind of sin, compromise. Because I'm still being blessed. If I was really doing something wrong, wouldn't he begin to chasten or punish me? Well, the goodness of God leads to repentance. And God wants you to know, even after you walk away and maybe you're involved in something you know is wrong, he still blesses you because he's trying to say to you, I love you, come back to me. Come back to me. Now, if after a while you let the devil tell you God doesn't care, God must even approve because nothing in the way of chastening is going on, you are heading down a very dangerous path. So Jacob commands his family to do three things in preparation for them getting right with God. The first one, he says, is put away your foreign gods, your idols. Now, this statement takes us back, doesn't it? Put away. This is the patriarch talking to his family. He tells them, put away your foreign gods. Where did these idols come from? Well, they were probably the idols that Rachel stole from her father Laban. Remember when they had fled from Laban to go back to Canaan as God had told them to do? Before they left, Rachel steals these little household idols. We talked about this. The pagans had these idols, and, and, and they would have some uh, the size of knickknacks which they would put throughout their homes. And these were various idols to various gods, Baal and Ashtoreth and different things, and they would worship these idols. They were also, some of the ancient writings indicate that uh, they were also kind of like the deed to your house. Whoever owned the idols uh, could lay claim to the property. And so Rachel steals them. And Laban is furious. He thinks Jacob has done it. And as they have fled in the night to get away from Laban, get back to Canaan, at three days later, Laban finds out they've gone. So he gets some of his guys, his servants and sons, and they take off, off after Jacob and his family. They catch him a week later. And Laban is furious, you know, and puts on this big act like he's you know, just mortified that Jacob didn't let him throw a big party. What did you do? I would have kissed my grandkids. I would have thrown you a going away party. Yeah, right, okay. But at one point he says, look, even if you had to go, why did you steal my idols? And Jacob said, look, I didn't take your idols Go ahead and search every tent here, and if you find your idols in anyone's tent, that person will be killed. Mesopotamian law said, if anyone stole your household idols or gods, that person could be punished with death. So Jacob says, look, 
if you find your idols anywhere among us, you can kill that person. Well, he didn't realize that Rachel had the idols. And so he walks into her tent after he searches everybody else's tent and finds it sitting on a, on a, a, a saddle of one of the camels. And she's got the idols tucked underneath. And she says, Dad, please, no offense, but I, I can't get up. I'm, I have my period. I, you know, so just search around me. And uh, he does, doesn't find anything. But, but the idea is these idols probably were left from Rachel. Now, she takes them, and the family starts to use them, which is just shocking to me. I would imagine that when Jacob, I would have thought that when Jacob found out what Rachel had done, he would have gotten rid of them, or at least sent them back to Laban. But now the family falls into idolatry. Instead of Jacob purging his house, here's the thing. Instead of him purging his house, of things that could stumble his family, he lets them stay there. And in the process, he brings his family into idolatry. So a lot of Christian families who have not purged their house, they got a lot of junk laying around, a lot of stuff on the, on the TV, a lot of movies and things that they have, a lot of games, a lot of, uh, you know, some of these video games are absolutely demonic and horrendous, but they have those in the house. There's a lot of things that Christians should purge their houses of. Jacob didn't do that. It cost his family dearly. And by the way, an idol is anything or anyone that you worship. Today we have many idols in America. People worship Bacchus. That's the god of drunkenness partying. They worship Ashtoreth, the goddess of lust and sex. Uh, they worship Narcissus, the god of self, basically. You know, we say a person is narcissistic. They're in love with themselves, you know. Uh, mammon, the god of money. There's a lot of uh, gods in our country that people worship, even people in the church. So we think that we read this and go, well, you know, we don't, we're not affected by idols anymore today. Think again. Think again. So first of all, put away your foreign gods, your idols. Number two, purify yourselves, he said to his family. Now, this was done by washing in water as a symbol of cleansing themselves from the filth of the flesh and consecrating themselves to God. In New Testament times, the Jews practiced ritual cleansings for different reasons. Uh, before they ate, we'll say. After they came in contact with something unclean, but especially before they would go into the temple to worship God, they would always take a ritual bath in a, uh, a pool known as a mikvah. This was a ritual cleansing. They would always do it. And the idea was, again, it symbolized that you were washing away filth of the flesh. You were kind of making yourself clean before you entered God's presence now today for believers in the new covenant we wash in the water of the word daily for cleansing and consecration paul tells us that in ephesians 5 26 also you remember what david said in psalm 119 verses 9 and 11 how can a young man cleanse his way by taking heed according to your word david says he said your word i have hidden in my heart that i might not sin against you this is how we cleanse ourselves in the new covenant. So he said, put away your foreign gods, your idols, purify yourselves. And then number three, he said, change your garments. Now guys in the Old Testament, washing the body and changing the clothes symbolized a new beginning. Whenever you wanted to, God wanted you to enter into a new beginning, they would typically wash themselves and change their clothes. In fact, before God gave the law at Mount Sinai, he ordered the people to wash and change their clothes. For they were about to enter into a solemn covenant with God, a new life, a life of holiness and obedience as God's own special people. You can read about that in Exodus 19, verses 9 to 15. 
And guys, this is probably where Paul picked up the uh, metaphor for a changed life. Remember in Ephesians 4, verses 22 to 24, he exhorts believers to put off the old conduct which belongs to the old life and clothe yourself with the new life in Christ created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. No doubt borrowing from that whole idea that, you know what, when you enter into a new relationship with God, a new phase in your life, a new beginning, you know, in the Old Testament they washed themselves with water, they changed clothing, but Paul says we've washed with the water of the word and we now are to put off the old man, the old lifestyle, put on the new, which is created in Christ for holiness and righteousness. And guys, it was only after Jacob's family did these three things that he could say to them, verse 3, then let us arise and go up to Bethel, and I will make an altar there to God. Listen to me. First comes consecration, then comes worship. Not the other way around. First comes consecration, then comes worship. Acceptable worship to God depends on personal holiness. Remember what David said in Psalm 24, verses 3 and 4? He said, Who may ascend to the hill of the Lord? Or who may stand in his holy place? What's he talking about? He's talking about ascending Mount Zion to where the tabernacle is. That, and they did that to worship God. He is basically saying, Who may stand in God's presence and worship him? He answers his own question. He said, He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to an idol, nor sworn deceitfully. He's talking about personal holiness. Okay? I mean, Jesus talked about those who worship God, but their hearts were far from them, from him, and in vain they worship God. God wants us to be people who are holy. And that just simply means set apart from the world, again, to be fully committed and consecrated to him. All right? Uh, it's not a whole list of do's and don'ts that some churches present. No, it's just basically separate yourself from the world and present yourself to God as his exclusive treasure and possession to be used by him for his glory. Now, Genesis 35, verse 4. So they gave Jacob all the foreign gods which were in their hands and the earrings. Now, these earrings were used in pagan worship somehow. So they, they gave Jacob all the earrings which were in their ears, and Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree which was by Shechem. He buried them there. He buried him there. I like what one pastor, author, had to say. He said, the tree in Scripture, of course, speaks of the cross. In other words, the picture is that Jacob left his sin at Calvary, at Calvary's cross. When Jesus died on the cross, not only was the penalty of sin paid for completely, but the power over sin was provided fully. This is an amazing and potent truth. You can leave here tonight and say, Lord, truly, you are good in allowing me to go to Bethel once, uh, once more. I'm tired of my sin, and I want to make my way free and un unencumbered uh, by the junk of the world which entangles me, end quote. So it's never too late to make a fresh start. It's never too late to say, God, I'm tired of living in compromise and carnality. I want to get back to my Bethel, the place where I first met you. And I want to be free of all this junk I've wrapped myself in. And God is saying, that's fine. That's what I've been waiting for. And there's always an open door by God to do that very thing if you want to. Verse 5, And they journeyed, and the terror of God was upon the cities that were all around them, and they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. Remember now in chapter 34, uh, Levi and Simeon had wiped out all the men of Shechem because uh, Shechem, the son of, of the king, 
had raped their sister Dinah. And so, you know, it's just a fit of rage. They went ahead and they slaughtered all the men. And in fact, they took the women and children captives as slaves, took all the loot of the, of the city, took everything. And so that would have made them a very, you know, that would have made all the people around them very angry and where they would want to have gotten even with Jacob and his family. But God put the fear of God upon these people so that Jacob and his family walked through these areas and none of the enemy went near them. Now, here's the thing spiritually. When you purpose to get right with God, when you purpose to get back to God, he will not allow the enemy to stop you. The enemy might try to, you know, make it seem like, what's the point? It's too, it's too late. But he will never be able to do anything to stop you because God won't allow it. As John Newton put it, grace will see you home. A little different context, but the same idea. Okay? Verse 6. So Jacob came to Luz, that is Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan, he and all the people who were with him. And he built an altar there and called the place El Bethel because there God appeared to him when he fled from the face of his brothers. So finally, finally, Jacob returns to Bethel. But guys, he's not the same man he was 30 years earlier. This is demonstrated in the fact that he renames the place. He named it Bethel originally, house of God, and he renames it now to El Bethel, God of the house of God. Now to me, that is significant, and that demonstrates growth on Jacob's part. Look, all Christians go to the house of God. All Christians go to church, right? A lot of them go for a lot of different reasons. Many today go because they like the music, the fellowship, the pastor, you know. He's cool. Some of us are cool, you know. But they like the pastor, maybe the concerts, the food court. There's a lot of things that draw people to church, and often it's all about how church is going to make them feel or what church is going to do for them. You can always tell Christians who are very immature and carnal because that's the motivation. I heard a very sad story, true story, about one of our, our Calvary pastors who has been ministry, in ministry for 40-some years. And um, the church was going through some turmoil. I mean, there, there was, the devil was really attacking, and money had gotten really tight, and so they had to close down their bookstore and coffee shop, and that, uh, that led to an exodus of many people from the church because they couldn't go to a church without a bookstore and a coffee shop. And I thought, Here's, this, this is where we are uh, in the church today. If we don't have the amenities, many people just don't. It's not about Jesus, really. It's about how church is going to make me feel, the social interaction, you know, just being able to go and enjoy myself and so on. You can always tell a spirit-filled Christian, because they don't care if the church meets, you know, in the back of a boxcar or something it's all about jesus it's all about they they come to church not they don't come to bethel they come to el bethel they come to the god of the house of god and this is something that is so desperately needed in modern christianity especially in america we have churches that have thousands and thousands of people but i'm wondering how many of those people are just coming to the house of god and not really to the god of the house of God. So Jacob is in Bethel, which now is El Bethel. But listen to me, guys. Just because he came back to Bethel, just because he got right with God, doesn't mean that Jacob was going to be spared all heartache and pain, just like the rest of us. 
I mean, you can walk away from God for years, and God is always beckoning you to come back. When you finally come back, and some Christians have this mindset, if I'm right with God, and I'm doing what he's told me to do, he's going to protect me, he's going to watch over me, he's not going to let anything bad happen to me. Well, that's not really true. God is with us, and God is watching over us. And by the way, what we sometimes call bad, God is using for good. And that also goes along with maturity. But just because we're where God wants us to be doesn't mean we're going to be free from loss and heartache. Certainly that was true of Jacob. See, the rest of this chapter, guys, deals with the death of three people that Jacob dearly loved and the heartbreaking sin of his oldest son, Reuben. Verse 8, Now Deborah, Rebekah's nurse, died, and she was buried below Bethel under the terebinth tree, so the name of it was called Alan Bakuth. We really don't know anything about Rebecca's nurse, Deborah, except that she was obviously very much loved by the family because when she died, the place where they buried her, they named Alan Bakuth, which means Oak of Weeping. So they were devastated when Deborah died. Who was she? Well, she probably came with Rebecca. Remember now, 150 years earlier, Abraham sent Eliezer, his eldest servant, to Mesopotamia to get a bride for Isaac out of the people that Abraham, you know, out of his family. And uh, Eliezer makes this 700-mile journey. Took him five months, no doubt. And uh, you remember the story, how God prospered his journey. He comes to a well and says, Lord, if, will you prosper my journey by letting the woman you want Isaac to marry to come out and offer me a drink and offer to water my... Ten camels, which was no small thing, by the way. And sure enough, here comes Rebecca and uh, offers him a drink and says, oh, let me water your ten camels. And Eliezer said, praise God. I can't believe how God has just prospered my journey. So anyways, he goes to with Rebecca to her house, he introduces himself to, his, to her brother and father, and so tells him he's come to get a bride for uh, his master Abraham. They knew who Abraham was. His fame had, you know, he had come from the areas, and they knew he was a very wealthy man. And um, that I'm here. So Abraham sent me to gather a bride for his son Isaac. Rebekah agrees to go with Eliezer all the way back to Canaan to marry a man she's never seen before. Now, when she left, her father sent with her some handmaidens. And one of them, no doubt, was uh, Deborah, who remained with her for all the years that she lived until she finally died. And over the course of those many years, and remember, it was 150 years that this had passed since God had sent, uh, since Abraham had sent Eliezer to get a bride for Isaac. So Deborah's been around quite a while. And over the course of those many years, she had become more than a servant. She had become really a member of the family, so much so that when Rebecca died, Jacob kept her on. He allowed her to stay in the, living with him. He took care of her until the day she died. But this was to be the first of three losses Jacob would endure that together had a profound effect on his spiritual life. We get a glimpse into this from the next verse. Verse 9, Then God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Padan Aram and blessed him. And God said to him, Your name is Jacob. Your name shall not be called Jacob anymore, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel. And you say, well, I'm a little confused. Back in chapter 32, verse 28, didn't God already name him Israel? Yes, he did. But now he reaffirms the name to Jacob because through the deaths of Deborah 
Rachel, and then Isaac, his father, Jacob would begin to be transformed into the very embodiment of what that name implied. Listen, 35 years ago, I gave my heart to Jesus. And God pronounced me Christian. So that's your name. You're, you're Christian, okay? Did I walk in all that that name implied immediately? Some of it. It's taken me 35 years, and believe me, I'm not there yet. It's taken me 35 years. A lot of blessings, a lot of trials, a lot of heartaches to become who I am today, which, again, I'm still a work in progress. But when God calls us and names us or gives us the title Christian, we don't immediately become all that that implies. That's just the starting point, okay? Same thing with Jacob here. God names him Israel back in chapter 32, but now because of some of the tragedies he's going to suffer, uh, people that he loves that will be taken from him, now he begins to really grow into that name. Verse 11, Also God said to him, I am God Almighty, be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall proceed from you, and kings shall come from your body. The land which I gave Abraham and Isaac I give to you, and to your descendants after you I give this land. Then God went up from him in the place where he talked with him. So God actually came down and talked with Jacob face to face, and then God zipped it back up into heaven. Um, so Jacob set up a pillar in, in the place where he talked with him, with the Lord, a pillar of stone, and he poured a drink offering on it, and he poured oil on it. And Jacob called the name of the place where God spoke to him, Bethel. Well, again, house of God, but uh, El Bethel was really what he had called it. Now, when God said in verse 11, um, I am God Almighty, the uh, Hebrew is El Shaddai, which means the all-sufficient one. And what is God saying to Jacob? He's saying, Jacob, have you come to a place where you realize I'm all you really need? All your life you've been kind of, you know, running around like a crazy guy, trying to gain wealth and this and that and so on and so forth. And God says, you know, have you finally come to a place where you recognize that I'm all you need? Remember Solomon? Uh, wisest guy in the world, right? But he didn't act so wise for most of his life. Because he went on this long detour for many, many years where he was trying to find happiness in life in all the wrong places. And you read about what he went through and what he pursued in Ecclesiastes. We talked about he pursued pleasure. And he pursued material things. And he pursued, you know, building things. And he goes through all these things that he thought would bring him happiness. And none of it did. Until the end of his life, he really comes back to God. And begins to write at the end of Ecclesiastes to all the young people by saying, Look, don't make the mistake that I made. When I was a young guy, my father told me, Solomon... Here it is. Love the Lord with all your heart. Serve him with a loyal heart and a willing mind. And that's really the end of it. That's all you need to do. You'll be, you'll be a happy man. Solomon said, I should have listened to my dad. He was pretty wise. He had a relationship with God like I would still love to have. I should have listened to him. But learn from my mistakes, young people. Don't leave God to pursue happiness in all these other places. You won't find it. It's a dead pursuit. He said, you come to God early. You give him your life while you're young. And he will use you all the days of your life for his glory. So, Jacob, I'm all you need. I'm El Shaddai. Now, this is the first time in the scriptures we read of a drink offering. 
You see it there in verse, um, yeah, verse 14. Later on in Exodus, in Leviticus, and then the book of Numbers, we learn that the drink offering was made of wine, poured out on the animal sacrifices as they were being offered to God there on the altar. And the idea was that as soon as it was poured out in the sacrifice, it immediately turned into steam and, and steam and ascended to God's throne is the idea. Uh, it evaporated then, never to be reclaimed and reused again for anything else. It was gone. It was God's and only his. You know, Paul picked up on that and told the Ephesians that that's the way he wanted to live his life. That's what he wanted to be, a drink offering poured out to God Someone that pours his life out to God and uh, his life ascends to God in the way he worships and serves God, but his life is completely consumed, never to be used for anything else. And that's a good goal for all of us. Verse 16, Then they journeyed from Bethel. And when there was but a little distance to go to, Eph uh, to Ephrath, which is the uh, county that Bethlehem was located in, Rachel labored in childbirth, and she had hard labor. Now it came to pass when she was in hard labor that the midwife said to her, Do not fear, you will have this son also. And so it was as her soul was departing, for she died, that she called his name Ben-Onai. This is quite a scene. This is quite a scene. We read this, and you know, we're familiar with the story, but we don't stop to really think about that these were real people. This was a real circumstance. Rebecca was, uh, Rachel, I should say, was dying, giving birth to this son. She called him Ben-Onai, but his father called him Benjamin. So Rachel died and was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is, Bethlehem. And Jacob set up a pillar on her grave, which is the pillar of Rachel's grave to this day. Then Israel journeyed and pitched his tent beyond the Tower of Eder. Rachel was dying. She knew it. She was probably hemorrhaging. Her midwife tried to uh, comfort her by telling her that she was giving birth to another son. In fact, she named Joseph. I forgot exactly what the name means, but uh, basically more are coming. Okay, And uh, that was a, a name given to Joseph in faith, that God was going to give her more sons. Well, he gave her one more, and... Uh, her midwife tried to comfort her with that knowledge, but it was little consolation to Rachel. And so as she was expiring, she named the child Benoni, which means son of my sorrow. But Jacob, who knew the power firsthand of a name, right? Because his name characterizes his whole life. And God renamed him. Jacob means heel catcher, basically scoundrel, uh, you know, uh, deceiver, and so on. Not a very flattering name, but Jacob sure grew into it. It, was, it suited him. But Jacob, who knew the power of a name, God renames him Israel, but he knew that that name would be a constant source of grief and guilt to his youngest son, especially every year on his birthday, which would always be a day of mourning because it would also be the day that is of his mother's death, a death she had suffered while giving birth to him. Can you imagine that, living with that all your life? And Jacob, therefore, wanting to spare his son a lifetime, of pain and condemnation, chose to rename him Benjamin. She called him Ben-Onai, the son of my sorrow. He called him Benjamin, the son of my right hand. And of course, in that culture, since most people were right-handed, as they are even in our culture, the right hand became synonymous with the place of blessing. 
and power and favor. And by renaming him the son of my right hand, Jacob was saying, no, this son has not brought grief into my life because his mother died giving him birth. He is going to bring joy into my life. He is going to be the favored son. I'm going to honor his mother by calling him the son of my right hand. But listen to me. Jacob's sorrow over the loss of Rachel was deep, very deep. Even when he was on his deathbed, some of the last words he spoke were of his beloved Rachel. In chapter 49, excuse me, chapter 48, he says, As for me, when I came from Padmaram to my sorrow, Rachel died in the land of Canaan on the way. Jacob lived in tears for his wife Rachel for the rest of his life. There are some hurts we just don't ever get over. God gives grace. I was listening to one pastor who told the story of a guy in his church who was in his 80s. And when he was a very young man, he lost a son when he was just a baby. And that had to be 60, 65 years earlier. And he asked him one time, he said, uh, I forgot his name, but he said, how often do you think about your son? And he looked at him with tears in his eyes and said, I think about him every single day. Some pain just, just doesn't go away. And I think Jacob lived with the pain of losing the love of his life for the rest of his life. Now here's the question. Why did Jacob leave Bethel? Verse 16. Why did Jacob leave Bethel? It took him so many years to get there. The place where God called him to be, why did he leave there? I mean, did God tell him to leave? Or did he make this decision on his own? I think it was probably Jacob's decision. A decision that, listen, cost Rachel her life. I mean, for Jacob to take his 100-year-old wife in the third trimester of her pregnancy, I mean, right before she was about to give birth, to take her, stick her on a camel where she would be bounced around as they made their way on this journey, uh, so close to her delivery, seems to have contributed to Rachel's death. And I personally think, guys, that it left Jacob a deeply broken man for allowing himself, for allowing his self-will to go with his own way and do whatever he wanted attitude to cost Rachel her life. Now, listen, you might be thinking, well, I think you're being a little too hard on Jacob. I mean, you can't be sure that God didn't tell him to leave there and go on this journey. Well, remember that after God renamed Jacob Israel, whenever Jacob was acting in the flesh, the Holy Spirit calls him Jacob. And whenever he is in the Spirit, uh, walking in the Spirit, the Spirit calls him Israel. Look at verse 20 again. And who? Jacob set up a pillar on her grave, which is the pillar of Rachel's grave to this day. I think this might have truly been the thing that broke Jacob more than anything else. I think that Jacob buried more than Rachel in that grave. I think he buried himself. I mean, I think this marks the death and burial of Jacob the man. Again, verse 20, And Jacob set up a pillar on her grave, which is the pillar of Rachel's grave to this day. Then who? Israel journeyed and pitched his tent beyond the tower of Eder. Jacob buried Rachel. But Israel journeyed on. It was Jacob's bad decision that led to Rachel's death. But her death 
also led to Jacob's death. He died to self. Listen, sometimes a person's bad choices impact in a very negative way the people around them that they love. But often God uses to finally bring them to their own point of death, you might say, death of self, where God finally is able to get a hold of them. You know, we have in our own church a man named Randy. You know him. And uh, Randy has a, uh, to say it's an interesting testimony would be, uh, it's a powerful testimony, but it's a painful testimony. Uh, Randy grew up, and he's told me I could share this story. But Randy grew up in a Christian home. His dad was a very godly pastor in the area, pastored faithfully for many years. His mother, a very godly woman. And Randy grew up, you know, with church, church people. Uh, he had good teaching. He had good examples in his parents. But at one point, when he got into his teen years, he got into drugs and alcohol. And they completely took over his life. I mean, he became the total slave of alcohol and drugs. He said, Pastor, it got so bad that one day I took a loaded gun, put it to my mother's head, and I told my father, you give me money for drugs or I'll kill her. He said, what I put my family, what I put my parents through, and yet they loved me, they prayed for me. He said, I'm convinced because of all I put my parents through, I'm the reason my dad died of a heart attack early. My dad, he said, died before I got saved. He just loved me. They prayed for me. I put them through hell. And I'm sure I was used by the devil to take my dad early off this earth. It was the death of Randy's father that broke Randy. It was the bad choices he made that caused so much pain to his parents and no doubt others around him that he loved. It was his bad choices that caused his dad to die prematurely. But it was the very thing that God used to break Randy and bring him to Jesus. He said, my mom, I was so involved with drugs, and I knew I had to quit. He said, I went through such horrendous withdrawals for three weeks. My mother took off work. She stayed by my side, feeding me milkshakes throughout the day just to keep me alive. Finally, I was delivered from the, the drugs. He said, I wish my father could have seen the day I came to Christ. He said, but I'll see him again. And now he spends most of his day because he uh, has some medical issues that require him to take nebulizer treatments all day. But while he's taking the treatments in between, he listens to his father's teachings. He's got them all on cassette. He studies the word of God. And God is using him to touch people. But see, that's just like Jacob. Jacob was self-willed. I don't know what happened. I don't know why he left Bethel. Again, I feel he was in the flesh. I feel it was a decision that he made for whatever reason. Jacob was the kind of guy who was always having to be on the run for something. And I think that his decision to leave Bethel and take Rachel, when she was so far along in her pregnancy, I think it contributed to her, her premature death. And God used it to really break Jacob in a very profound way. Jacob buried Rachel. 
but Israel went on from there. Someone who was governed or controlled by God. And it says he pitched his what? Tent. Of course, living in that tent spoke of a sojourner, a pilgrim. After Rachel's death, Jacob became a remarkable pilgrim for God. He's not the same man anymore. Verse 22. And it happened when Israel dwelt in that land that Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard about it. Now the sons of Jacob were twelve. The sons of Leah were Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, and Simeon, Levi, Judah, and Issachar, and Zebulun. The sons of Rachel were Joseph and Benjamin. The sons of Bilhah, Rachel's maidservant, were Dan and Naphtali. And the sons of Zilpah, uh, Leah's maidservant, were Gad and Asher. These were the sons of Jacob who were born to him in Paddan Aram. Now, what was really behind Reuben's incest with his father's concubine, Bilhah? Was it just lust? Well, I'm sure that was part of it. But some commentators feel that there was a lot more going on here than simple lust. Let me just read what one, what one author says, and I quote, he said, Reuben's sin had its impetus in Jacob's favoring Rachel's children at the expense of the children of Leah, his unloved wife. We have already seen how Jacob's lack of concern for the honor of their sister Dinah fueled their brother's anger and homicidal rampage. Here, Reuben sensed that with Rachel's death, her servant Bilhah would become Jacob's favorite over his mother Leah. So Reuben seduced her to ensure that she could not rival Leah's position. The result of Reuben's liaison with Bilhah was that she was accorded the status of, quote, living widowhood, unquote, just as happened to David's concubines when his son, his son Absalom defiled them, as recorded in 2 Samuel chapter 15 and chapter 16. Now, Reuben's sin, though, involved much more than this. Uh, listen, guys, for a son to take his father's concubine in this manner was really his way of saying he was now usurping or taking over his father's place, all right? That maybe Reuben felt like Jacob's an old guy now, and I don't have to listen to him. In fact, I'm the firstborn. I'm going to usurp now the leadership role. It's all going to be mine. And so by taking one of Jacob's concubines, Bilhah, lying with her, uh, he defiled her so that, you know, she could never be the favorite. Uh, his mother Leah would probably now fill that role. But also he was saying that he was now head of the family. Remember when um, Absalom declared himself king and David had to flee Jerusalem. And uh, Absalom led this revolt, right? And David didn't want to bring bloodshed into the city, so he just left quietly with some of his men. And what did Absalom do? He took a tent, put it up on top of the palace roof, and uh, he, one by one, had David's concubines come in, and he lay with each of them, because in that culture it meant now you were used, uh, anyone who, who became king inherited the harem of the previous king. David did when he replaced Saul, and this was Absalom's way of saying, I'm the king now. It's the idea. So Reuben was kind of, I think, was operating along those lines, but... Um, it didn't work out for him. In fact, First Chronicles 5 tells us that, um, and I'm quoting, uh, for he was the firstborn, but because he defiled his father's couch, his birthright was given to the sons of Joseph, uh, the son of Israel. So Reuben, as the firstborn, lost his um, 
birthright because he defiled one of his father's concubines. I just say this to you. Jacob doesn't seem to do much about this. Jacob was a pretty placid guy in a lot of ways. But he never forgot this. And at the end of his life, when he is prophesying over each of his sons on his deathbed, we read, in fact, turn to Genesis 49. I'll read it to you. He comes to Reuben and says, verse 3, Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might and the beginning of my strength. The excellency of dignity and the excellency of power, unstable as water, you shall not excel, because you went up to your father's bed. Then you defiled it. He went up to my couch. So Jacob never forgot this, and it wound up uh, causing him to really basically say that Reuben would never excel. Any man that thought the way he did, where he had to defile one of his father's concubines and do this whole thing to get himself into a place of power and so on, uh, Jacob said he'll never excel in this life. Well, verse 27. Then Jacob came to his father Isaac at Mamre. Now he hasn't seen his father for 30 years. He came to his father Isaac at Mamre, or Kirjath Arba, that is Hebron, where Abraham and Isaac had dwelt. Now the days of Isaac were 180 years. So Isaac breathed his last and died, and was gathered to his people, being old and full of days, and his sons Esau and Jacob buried him. This was the third loss Jacob endured in a relatively short amount of time. And as I said, these three funerals of three people that Jacob loved deeply, especially Rachel, had a profound effect on Jacob's spiritual life. It seems that after the loss of these three, Jacob became a man more than ever before who began to set his eyes on things above, not on things on the earth. His possessions no longer meant that much to him. And Israel, Israel, began to focus more on the life to come than he ever had. Look, as the writer to the Proverbs said, uh, I was young and now I'm old. Uh, I can I can echo that. I was young, and now I'm old. And the older you get, and some of you are my age, one of the sad things about growing old is you begin to see people you love die. Now, if they're Christians, you'll see them again. But the older you get, the longer you live, the more you begin to see people you love die. Some of them are not just physical flesh and blood, I mean family, immediate family, flesh and blood, church family. There's a lot of people that we love in our church that have gone on to be with Jesus. Now we rejoice that they're with Jesus, but it's difficult to let them go. And I've discovered that the more people I love die, the more this world grows strangely dim to me. You know, I have, uh, I'm, I'm wondering, you know, you, you all remember what Jesus said. He said, look, don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves can break in and steal, but rather lay up for yourself treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust can destroy and where thieves cannot break through and steal. For wherever your treasure is, there your heart will be also. I don't know. Maybe Jesus had in mind in part the people that go on up ahead of us, you know, I mean, aren't they part of the treasure in heaven that we're waiting to see? And the more they gather in heaven 
and wait for us to join them. And the more our hearts are there, you know, the more we want to see them. They become a treasure that we, we can't wait to, uh, to see again. Well, by the end of chapter 35, guys, Jacob is roughly 120 years old. He lives to be 147. And from a spiritual standpoint, these last 25 or 30 years would be the best of his life. Why? You know why I think? Because he lived those years as Israel, not as Jacob. The way of the transgressor is what? Hard. The way of the transgressor is hard. If we don't obey God and want to do our own thing, we just beat our, you know, God just, he says, well, I mean, if you don't want to obey me, if you don't trust that I'm trying to keep you from a lot of pain and heartache, if you think that going your own way like the prodigal, you think that's going to bring you happiness, I, I have to let you go then. Because your heart isn't really with me. And so God lets us do our own thing. And of course, as we do things that are in violation of what he has said, consequences beat us up, don't they? The consequences of our actions are the very thing that God uses to tenderize our hearts. Like the prodigal son who woke up after, you know, he didn't wake up. But he, he woke up in a sense that he said, Where, what am I doing Slopping pigs. About the lowest job a Jewish person could have. To stand and pigs, slop the pigs, unclean animals. He said, what am I doing here? I mean, my father's servants have plenty to eat. I'm starving to death because there was a famine in the land. He said, I know what I'll do. I'll go back to my father's house. His circumstances brought about by his own rebellion tenderized his heart and brought him back to his father who received him with open arms. Our Heavenly Father will always receive us with open arms, no matter how long we stay away, no matter how much sin we get into. His arms are always open. He's always beckoning us to come back to Bethel. So God willing, um, unless Jesus comes and we'll finish this in heaven, but um, God willing, next week we'll uh, zip through chapter 36, Okay. Uh, you know, won't spend a lot of time in that chapter and get into chapter 37, the story of Joseph. Very important figure, not only in this book, but in the Bible. So we'll see, uh, start looking at the story of Joseph next time. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your amazing grace. We thank you, Lord, that as you have demonstrated to Joseph, excuse me, to Jacob, in all the years that, Lord, he walked away from you, all the years he lived a self-willed life, all the years he really was running from your perfect will for his life, doing his own thing, yet, Lord, in all the heartache it brought into his life, yet, Lord, you were always beckoning him to come back to the place where he first met you, the place of his first love, even as you do with all of us, Lord. Father, I don't know... Who in this room is going through what? You do. I don't know, Lord, if there is somebody here this evening that is running from you. You're chasing them down. <laughs> they know it. You're hot on their heels. But for whatever reason, they're, they feel like they need to run from you instead of surrender to you. Lord, will you show them? You're not the enemy. You're the one who is trying to chase them down, to grab hold of them, to love them, to take care of them, to watch over them, Lord, just to bless them. Lord, we will never go wrong by surrendering our lives completely to you. 
And again, you don't want 90% love and commitment. You want 100%. Give us grace to offer you that, Lord. You deserve nothing less. Father, we thank you. We ask you to continue to bless these studies for your glory. In Jesus' precious name, amen.